Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about the thyroid and parathyroid glands. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven Nett as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. So now we're going to move through the chain of glands. Anyway, we're going to start off this week, or we're going to continue this week after we did the adrenals last week, we're going to get into the thyroid and parathyroid. And we're going to start with the smaller of the two first, which is the parathyroid glands. So what are the key functions of the parathyroid glands? Well, the parathyroid gland is composed of four tiny glands, each the size of a grain of rice, and it's found behind the thyroid gland in the neck. It secretes only one hormone, parathyroid hormone, which regulates calcium levels in the blood primarily by increasing the levels when they're too low. And it accomplishes this by acting on three different parts of the body. The primary area that affects is the bones by stimulating the release of calcium from them into the bloodstream. It also works on the kidneys to reduce the loss of calcium in the urine. And parathyroid hormone also stimulates the production of active vitamin D in the kidneys. And then finally, due to its effects on vitamin D metabolism, parathyroid hormone also indirectly increases calcium as well as phosphorus absorption from food in the intestines. Interesting. Okay. So those are some pretty important functions. Now, what kind of problems can somebody experience when they have a parathyroid condition? Well, there's really two primary problems that can occur, and that is too much parathyroid hormone production and too little parathyroid hormone production. Yeah. Well, I could see that those would be the, really the only two. Yeah. Now, too much parathyroid hormone production is called hyperparathyroidism which causes raised calcium levels in the blood, or what's called hypercalcemia. Uh, hyperparathyroidism ultimately can increase bone destruction and decrease the formation of new bone, resulting in osteoporosis. Mm. Now, too little parathyroid hormone production is called hypoparathyroidism, and this causes low blood calcium levels called hypocalcemia. Now, hypocalcemia is pretty rare, but can be especially troublesome if a child has this and has a high fever because it can result in mild seizures called febrile convulsions, which involve muscle twitching from fever. Hmm. Fortunately, this isn't real serious because it doesn't cause any brain or spinal cord damage or lead to epilepsy. And what's really happening here is what's called hypocalcemic tetany, which is muscle twitching due to low blood calcium. Now, I brought up the recommendation for fever in podcast episode number 11 on the flu, and again in podcast number 53 on the common cold about supplementing with calcium. 
since the mechanism of a fever is that your muscles are warming up your bones to release calcium to trigger your white blood cells to fight the infection. So instead of losing stored bone calcium, it makes more sense to supplement with highly absorbable calcium. Right. I remember you went over that. Yeah, preferably in a liquid or powdered form. So this definitely should be given to children with high fevers so that muscle twitching or convulsions due to low blood calcium can be prevented. Okay. I'm sure there's going to be some type of supplement that parents can get for children for situations just like that. Mm -hmm. Now, those are the two different types of conditions, the hyper and the hypo, not enough and too much calcium. What are the most common causes for those conditions? Okay, let's start with hyperparathyroidism. Uh, about 100,000 people develop this condition each year with women outnumbering men two to one. And there are actually two types of hyperparathyroidism. There's primary hyperparathyroidism, which means the parathyroid gland is directly causing it. Mm -hmm. And 85% of the time, this is due to a non-cancerous benign tumor called an adenoma that is formed on one of the four parathyroid glands, causing it to become overactive and produce more parathyroid hormone. It can also be due to two or more of the glands becoming enlarged, causing them to produce excessive hormones. And very rarely, it's caused by cancer of the parathyroid gland. Okay. Now, secondary hyperparathyroidism is the result of another condition in the body which lowers calcium or vitamin D levels. The most frequent condition that causes this is chronic kidney disease. And then hypoparathyroidism. Again, this is very rare and the most common cause is an injury to the parathyroid gland, and that includes, believe it or not, head and neck surgery. Hmm. Yeah, and it can also be present at birth or be due to an autoimmune condition that not only affects the parathyroid glands, but also other hormone glands, including the thyroid, ovaries, or adrenal glands. All right. So then what are the medical approaches for the different parathyroid conditions that you went over? Well, first of all, diagnosing parathyroid conditions accurately is very important. And whether it's hyperparathyroidism or hypoparathyroidism, they're normally initially detected with blood tests. So with hyperparathyroidism, this manifests as both high blood levels of calcium and parathyroid hormone, whereas hypoparathyroidism shows decreased levels of both parathyroid hormone and calcium in the blood along with high blood levels of phosphorus. Hmm. So the main treatment for hyperparathyroidism is the surgical removal of the enlarged gland or glands. And this results in a 95% cure rate with a very low percentage of complications, which include, uh, you know, about 1% having vocal cord damage, which affects their speech. And about 1% to 5% end up losing all of their parathyroid glands, causing them to develop chronic low calcium levels, which is typically treated with calcium and or vitamin D supplements. Okay. Then there's also a new class of drugs called calcimimetics that shut down the secretion of parathyroid hormone. They have been FDA approved for secondary hyperparathyroidism due to kidney failure with dialysis and hyperparathyroidism caused by parathyroid cancer, but not for the usual primary hyperparathyroidism due to enlarged glands. Hmm. Now for hypoparathyroidism, calcium carbonate and vitamin D supplements are the only approved treatments. Hmm. I thought carbonate was not the best form of calcium. Well, you're correct on that, and we'll go over some better ones later. Okay. 
And there are our National Institute of Health studies showing that the investigational drug PTH works well as an alternative medical therapy. Okay. So you hinted at this just a moment ago, but what are some alternative approaches to these various parathyroid conditions? Well, again, you know, these are based on the cause of the condition. And obviously, if the individual has cancer of the parathyroid gland, then medical attention must be given to it before even considering any type of alternative treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, the literature doesn't really show any viable alternative treatments for primary hyperparathyroidism due to the adenoma tumor. And, you know, with the surgical removal success rate of 95%, well, that's obviously the best way to go for that. Right. Um, If it's a secondary hyperparathyroidism condition due to a vitamin D deficiency, then supplementing with vitamin D3 would be a logical approach. And if it's complicated by a chronic kidney disorder that's not so serious that the person, you know, isn't on dialysis yet, then kidney support in the form of glandulars could be beneficial along with an appropriate diet. Uh, For example, if the person is in borderline kidney failure, then you would make sure that they're on a protein-restricted diet. Mm -hmm. Now, for hypoparathyroidism, which again is pretty rare, I just went over the fact that the only improved uh, medical treatments are calcium carbonate and vitamin D supplements. And then, of course, you brought up the fact that calcium carbonate is an inferior source. Right. So, uh, see, I actually do pay attention to what you're saying during these episodes. Yeah, and we covered that in detail in podcast number 60 covering calcium and magnesium. Right. And in that podcast, I listed the inferior sources of calcium and the better sources of calcium that are easier to absorb and less likely to build up in the body in places uh, that you don't want excess calcium, such as your arteries, kidneys, brain, and joints. So, that's a good one to, you know, listen to again to get the specific forms. Um, right. But, you know, I would say that the ideal calcium supplement for hypoparathyroidism is Calma Plus, made by Standard Process. It contains three really good forms of calcium along with magnesium and parathyroid glandular. And then what I would recommend is that you add in a good vitamin D supplement or vitamin D3 supplement at up to 10,000 international units per day along with a K2 supplement at about 100 to 200 micrograms per day to balance it out. Excellent. All right. So that's the parathyroid gland. Now we're going to go on to the thyroid gland, which, you know, people would think, oh, they've got something similar. And really, they don't other than a name. Um, So let's go over again what some of the key functions are of the thyroid gland. Well, the thyroid gland's primary role in the body is to regulate its metabolism. And metabolism is your body's ability to break down food and convert it to energy. If it's done quickly, then you have a fast metabolism. And if it occurs slowly, then you have a slow metabolism. Mm -hmm. Um, The thyroid essentially keeps your metabolism under control through the action of its hormones, which are made with the addition of iodine that the thyroid extracts from the blood. Mm -hmm. We also learned in the previous podcast on hormones that the thyroid is controlled by the hypothalamus and pituitary gland because when thyroid hormone levels drop too low, then the hypothalamus secretes thyroid-releasing hormone, which then triggers the pituitary gland to make thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, which then causes the thyroid to produce more of its hormones. Yeah, which is interesting because you would think the thyroid would just 
monitor and regulate and release the hormone, but it doesn't. It's controlled by the pituitary and the hypothalamus. Mm -hmm. Now, the two primary hormones the thyroid produces are T3 and T4, with T4 making up about 80% and T3 20%, even though T3 is the stronger and more active hormone of the two. Mm -hmm. The thyroid gland also produces the hormone calcitonin, which helps to control blood calcium levels by lowering them. And this counterbalances parathyroid hormone, which increases the level of calcium in the blood by the body releasing it from the bones. Okay. All right. So those are the key functions. So now what kind of symptoms will develop if the thyroid isn't performing the functions the way that it should, or if it's just not functioning up to speed? Well, let's first look at the most common various thyroid conditions and break them all down. Okay. The most common one is hypothyroidism, which is when a person's thyroid doesn't produce enough thyroid hormone. There have been over 50 identified signs and symptoms that are associated with hypothyroidism, but I'm just going to list 10 of the more common ones. Okay. All right. They are uh, feeling tired or fatigued, weight gain feeling cold or having increased sensitivity to cold, dry skin, constipation, thinning hair and hair loss, weakness and achiness in the muscles and joints, trouble concentrating or remembering, puffy face, and in women, heavier than normal or irregular menstrual periods. Okay. Now, if hypothyroidism occurs in infants, it's called cretinism which results in abnormal bone formation and mental retardation. Hmm. The opposite condition is hyperthyroidism, which occurs when the thyroid produces too much thyroid hormone. Right. And the most common signs and symptoms of, the, of this are sensitivity to heat, hyperactivity, hand tremors, a rapid heartbeat, heart palpitations or irregular heartbeats, and eating excessively. Now, there are five different types of thyroid inflammation, also known as thyroiditis, and that includes Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disorder. And what's interesting about this condition is that it's also technically a type of hypothyroidism. Hmm. So it has all the same symptoms that I went over earlier when I described hypothyroidism. But it's a form of hyperthyroidism? No, it's an autoimmune disorder, but it's also a type of hypothyroidism. In fact, it's the most common type of hypothyroidism. Okay. There's also two very common thyroid conditions that can cause deformities of the gland. One of them is a goiter, which is an abnormal enlargement of the thyroid gland. And a goiter is usually painless and may not cause any symptoms, but a larger one can cause a cough and make it difficult to swallow or breathe. The other common deformity condition is a nodule or lump in the thyroid. And it's estimated that more than half the population will have one of these in their thyroid, and they're almost always benign or non-cancerous. And just like a goiter, they may not produce any symptoms, and rarely, if they do press against other structures in the neck, they can cause difficulty swallowing or breathing, as well as hoarseness or a voice change or pain in the neck. Okay. And then finally, the other more common thyroid condition is thyroid cancer though long-term survival rates are excellent for this. And the most common signs and symptoms associated with thyroid cancer are hoarseness, neck pain, and enlarged lymph nodes. Oh, wow. 
Okay. So now that we know what some of the different symptoms are that you can have from thyroid conditions, let's take a look at what some of the causes of those are. Okay. We'll go through these again, starting with hypothyroidism. The most common cause of hypothyroidism is the autoimmune condition, again, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And this is due to the body producing antibodies that attacked its own thyroid gland. Some of the more common causes include an over-response to hyperthyroidism treatment, thyroid surgery, radiation therapy, and medications including lithium, which is used to treat manic disorders. Mm. Yeah, nasty stuff. Mm-hmm. It can also be a congenital condition in which you're, you know, you're born with it, or it can be due to a pituitary disorder in which it doesn't produce enough TSH or thyroid-stimulating hormone. Uh, it can also be a complication of pregnancy or post-pregnancy, and it can also be due to an iodine deficiency. Okay. Now, hyperthyroidism, the most common cause of this is an autoimmune disorder called Graves' disease, where the body produces a specific antibody causing the thyroid to produce too much thyroid hormone. Uh, hypothyroidism can also be due to consuming excessive amounts of iodine or, or what's called a toxic goiter, which causes the thyroid to produce excessive amounts of thyroid hormone too. Okay. Speaking of goiter, the most common cause of this is an iodine deficiency, but it can also be due to inflammation. Then uh, as far as nodules are concerned, they can result from having Hashimoto's thyroiditis or from an iodine deficiency. And then cancer, you know, there's four major types of thyroid cancer and it's unknown what causes them, but the primary risk factors are a family history of goiters, exposure to high levels of radiation, and certain hereditary sy syndromes. Okay. So now you had mentioned something before about the best home tests that people can do for thyroid conditions. What are those? Well, you know, I love giving these to my patients for quite a few reasons. One is because they're accurate and cost-effective. Two, because they're really easy to do. Three, because they can be redone so that they can monitor thyroid function and determine if it's improving or not, especially if they're on a program of care. Mm -hmm. And finally, and most importantly, because they can also detect whether someone has thyroid resistance, which won't show up on a blood test. Remember, I went over thyroid resistance during the last podcast, and it's where a person's thyroid and pituitary are working just fine, and their hormone blood tests are in the normal range. But it won't get into the cells. Exactly. And then you end up with all the symptoms of full-blown hypothyroidism. Yeah, because of, I can't remember exactly what you said it was. It was that they're, the, what, they would, what the hormones would attach to in the cells aren't allowing them to do it or something like that. Yeah, the receptors, it's kind of like a plug in the wall. They just mm -hmm. aren't able to plug into the receptor sites. Right. Okay. So the tests that you, you were talking about that let you do that, what are they and how do people do them at home? Okay, there's two of them. And let's start with the iodine absorption test. Okay. Now, this involves purchasing a small bottle of 2% tincture of iodine. And you can get this at your local drugstore. You know, I've seen it at the CVS right by my office, and I know they have it at Walgreens too. Okay. And what you do is after your morning shower, uh, you use the applicator rod and paint a three-inch square patch on your upper thigh or lower abdomen and observe it every one to two hours. Uh, it should still be there after 24 hours. Hmm. 
What happens with this is that the quicker it's absorbed, the greater the deficiency of iodine in your body. And since your thyroid gland is the only part of the body that uses iodine in significant amounts, then it basically indicates a probable hypothyroid condition. Okay. I mean, I've had patients tell me that it was gone in as little as 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And what's really neat about this test is that after supplementing with iodine in a liquid form or by a food such as dulse or kelp, then you can retest yourself in a month and you should notice a marked improvement. Hmm, that's great. Yeah. All right. So that's the first test. Yeah. The other home thyroid test is called the basal body temperature test. Mm -hmm. The basal body temperature is the body temperature measured immediately after awakening in the morning and is an excellent monitor for your metabolism, which is primarily controlled by your thyroid. Mm -hmm. uh, the metabolism, again, is the rate at which each cell in the body converts food into energy. So a low temperature would indicate a sluggish metabolism, which is likely due to a slow or sluggish thyroid. Right. Other things that can lower your body temperature include, you know, vitamin and mineral deficiencies, allergies, and some viruses. The best thermometer to use is an old-fashioned mercury thermometer, but good luck finding one if you don't have one. I mean, you might get lucky on eBay, but if not, then go ahead and use a digital thermometer. So if you have a mercury thermometer, shake it down and put it on your bedside table before going to bed. Uh, if you have a digital thermometer, then it'll turn off automatically and just put it on your bedside table for morning use. Now, as soon as you wake up the next morning, you put the thermometer under your armpit and you lay still for about 10 minutes. That also means you can't get up and go to the bathroom yet. Okay. And then after, you know, 10 minutes, take the reading and mark it down on a piece of paper. I give my patients a graph to do this so that they can see daily fluctuations and more easily average out their average temperature. Mm -hmm. Now, for men, as well as women who, have, who are postmenopausal, this should be done for seven days in a row. Then you take the average. Okay. Now, for women who are still menstruating, uh, they should still, you know, they should begin the test on the second or third day of their cycle and repeat daily for 15 days. The fact is that, you know, there are temperature variations during the different phases of the menstrual cycle with temperatures being slightly higher at mid-cycle during ovulation, which is about 10 to 13 days prior to an expected period, and below normal temperatures on the second, third, and fourth days of the period. Okay. So those are the two tests that people can do at home simply. Mm -hmm. Now, if they go to their medical doctor, they may or may not have them do these tests. They'll probably do blood tests and look at various different hormones, hormone levels in the blood. And what are the medical approaches for thyroid conditions? Well, again, we'll just go through the various ones I went over before and start again with hypothyroidism. Okay. So for this, the most common medical treatment is medications such as levothyroxine, also known as Synthroid, and that's a synthetic form of T4, or, you know, there's the more natural medication called Armour Thyroid, which is made from pig glandulars. Hmm. Now, I haven't really seen any major side effects from people taking Armour Thyroid, but Synthroid has a long list of potential adverse effects, and one of them includes osteoporosis. And this is backed up by numerous medical studies. Uh, another thing that I found years ago when researching Synthroid is that once someone has been taking it for more than a year, then it's nearly impossible to get off of it because the body becomes dependent on it. Wow, that's not good. Yeah, so that's one caution if, you, you know, if you're just starting it, just take that into consideration. 
Now, for hyperthyroidism, uh, this is typically treated with antithyroid medications like methamazole, which interferes with the production of thyroid hormone. Uh, a similar medication called propylthiouracil is now used only for women in the first trimester of pregnancy. Radioactive iodine therapy is another option for hyperthyroidism, and it works by damaging the cells that make thyroid hormones. Mm. Doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Mm-hmm. No. Unfortunately, there are women who do not respond or who have side effects from these therapies, and surgery to remove either part of or the entire thyroid gland may be necessary because of that. And then another medication that may be prescribed for hyperthyroidism is the heart medication beta blockers, since they can block the effects of thyroid hormones on the body, specifically by slowing down a rapid heart rate and reducing hand tremors. Now, for goiter, you know, the medical treatment depends on the size of the goiter and the underlying cause. So if the goiter is small and doesn't cause problems and the thyroid is functioning normally, then a wait-and-see approach is typically recommended. But if it's associated with hypothyroidism, then medications for hypothyroidism are typically recommended, and likewise, if it occurs along with hyperthyroidism, medications for that will usually be recommended. Also, if it's associated with thyroid inflammation, then anti-inflammatories like aspirin or corticosteroids are typically prescribed. Mm -hmm. Now, if the goiter is so large that it causes pain or difficulty breathing or swallowing, then removing part of or all of the thyroid may be recommended. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, again, radioactive iodine is another option to shrink the goiter, but since it destroys thyroid cells, it can end up causing an underactive thyroid gland as a side effect. (laughs) Great. Yeah. A nodule can be treated with either radioactive iodine, antithyroid medications, or just simply surgical removal. Mm -hmm. And then cancer. Uh, most thyroid cancers are treated by removing the thyroid gland, although small tumors that haven't spread outside the thyroid gland can be treated by just removing the side of the thyroid containing the tumor. Okay. Uh, if lymph nodes are enlarged or show signs of cancer that is spread, then they will be removed as well. Uh, the good thing again about thyroid cancer is that long-term survival rates are excellent. Uh, But the biggest concern with side effects is if other treatments for it are needed, including radioactive iodine, radiation, or chemotherapy. Okay. Now, those are the medical approaches. What are some of the alternative approaches to thyroid conditions that you know do get good results or have either had personal experience or have heard of from other doctors that you know? Well, you may have noticed that many of the thyroid conditions are either caused by or are associated with an iodine deficiency. Well, the best food sources of iodine are seaweed sources, especially kelp and dulse. Mm -hmm. And my favorite iodine supplement is comparable to the legendary Lugol's iodine, which was first made in 1829 by the French physician Jean Lugol. It's been around that long. Wow, it has been a while. Almost 200 years. It's basically a liquid iodine preparation and only a few drops are needed daily. And I carry a similar version called Iosol. And not only is it good for thyroid conditions, but it's also outstanding for supporting the immune system and fighting infections like bacteria, viruses, and fungus. Now, a Canadian doctor by the name of Dr. David Derry wrote a book called Breast Cancer and Iodine, where he presents research showing that it can prevent and treat breast cancer successfully. Wow. Yeah. 
And also remember in our vitamin D podcast, we presented many studies showing that vitamin D can successfully prevent breast cancer too. So the two of these should definitely be part of a prevention protocol for women who are susceptible to breast cancer. For low thyroid function, in addition to iodine, I've gotten the best results from the NutraWest supplement called Total Thyroid Number 2. It does contain iodine, but also other important minerals, vitamins, herbs, glandulars, and the amino acid L-tyrosine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thyroid combines that with iodine to actually form thyroid hormone. Ah. Yeah. Now, if you test out uh, via Dr. Berg's seven principles of fat burning as a thyroid body type, then you should follow his thyroid diet and exercise program. And one of the things that he points out is that certain vegetables that are known as cruciferous vegetables, which include broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and cabbage, are known to lower iodine levels. So you should definitely supplement with iodine when eating these. And I would also like to add that foods containing gluten also reduce thyroid function, and they include wheat, barley, rye, and oats. Mm. I'd also like to make everyone aware of the fact that certain minerals compete with iodine in the body, and anything that contains them can be troublesome, especially for people with iodine deficiency thyroid conditions. Mm. Now, remember back in chemistry class, we learned about a group of five chemically related elements that were in the same vertical column, and they were called halogens. Mm -hmm. I remember. All right. And four of them are very common, including bromine, chlorine, fluorine, and iodine. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about these is that they tend to compete at the same receptor sites in the body. That's bad news for iodine, since bromine, chlorine, and fluorine can compete with it at the sites where the thyroid hormones plug into. Hmm. So with that in mind, it's best to avoid drinking tap water and excessive exposure to swimming water and sauna water, since they usually contain chlorine and bromine. Right. City water and toothpaste also contain fluoride, so you can get fluoride-free toothpaste at your local health food store. Mm-hmm. We talked about that. Yep. And in addition, heavy metals like cadmium, mercury, and lead should be checked for via urine or preferably hair analysis since they not only can accumulate in the brain and liver, but also at these same sites that thyroid hormones plug into. Hmm. So nutrients that can effectively chelate out heavy metals in the body include selenium, zinc, chlorella, garlic, vitamin C, glutathione, N-acetylcysteine, cilantro, DMSA, and EDTA. Wow. And I've also used the cold laser to help stimulate low thyroid function, reduce thyroid inflammation, and even slow down overactive thyroid glands. Oh, really? Yep. Of course, chiropractic adjustments to the lower neck are also helpful for thyroid disorders since the spinal nerves that control the thyroid exit the lower part of the neck. Uh, Reducing interference to these nerves improves blood and nerve flow to the thyroid, which can increase the power to it as well as communication signals between it and the brain, resulting obviously in better function. Right. Now, my favorite success story helping a patient with a thyroid condition was an elite Swedish athlete who I tested and had one half of his thyroid underactive and the other side was overactive. So along with chiropractic adjustments, I put him on two different supplements to treat both conditions. And what was really interesting about his situation was that one of the muscles of his shoulder blade was severely underdeveloped. 
even though he exercised pretty much every day and was very muscular and fit. I mean, it was like hollow. His, his, his uh, shoulder blade it was like hollow on one side. It was pretty wild. Wow. Now, it turns out that that muscle was directly linked to the side of his thyroid that was underactive. But after receiving a series of adjustments and taking his supplements, the muscle completely filled in and his shoulder blades looked identical after about a couple months. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. I wish I had taken pictures of that. That would have been a good, good one for before and after. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Now, is there anything else you'd like to say about this topic before we end? No, I think that should cover everything related to the parathyroid and thyroid glands. Okay. Well, very good. Well, we've covered now adrenals and thyroid and parathyroid, which are actually two of the different body types in the seven principles of fat burning. Next week, we're going to cover a third one, which is also part of the endocrine system, but is also part of the digestive system, which is the liver. And along with the liver, we're going to go into information on the gallbladder and the pancreas. So we get a triple shot next week. Mm -hmm. All right. So thanks again, Steve, for everything. And glad to hear that your air conditioning is working so well. Right on. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.